Blog Talk Radio. Om Shabbat Shalom, Holy Way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. Om Shabbat Shalom, Holy Way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. And I am the light within your soul In the essence of truth and right Love makes the circle whole And here we stand in line Waiting for some sacred sign But to find the balance is the purpose of this time to restore the balance of the universal mind And in the presence of my Lord of light and love Everything I see aspiring to be free And when I call to thee And come on bending knee Surrender to the all-pervading light and love Reflections of the one surrounding me with love And I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence Within and without Above and below, yeah East, west, north and south I sense your presence Without and within Below and above, yeah, yeah East, west, north and south I sense your presence I sense your presence For 
To find a balance is the purpose of this time To restore the balance of the universal mind I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence
And I've also created the Compassion Tour, which is a multi-state nationwide tour, including workshops, retreats, seminars, book signings, and fundraising events. And those you can also find on my website. It's available to register for where I'm at. Right now I'm in the Indiana area getting ready to head into Michigan. Um, I'm going to be going back into the Illinois area during July and possibly back here into the Indiana area in August. It's, it's all kind of been a fun <laughs> journey this year in in setting up events. So there's always more events coming up um, besides what's posted there right now, which is, is great. And in addition to that, um, we've just got all kinds of things that you can check out there on the website. If you enjoy the show, make certain that you tell people about it. Share it in your social media. I find always when I share a show that um, you know it's not only great that people can use the same link and come back and listen to it at their convenience, but there's almost always something there that somebody will go, you know, I really like what this topic is about, or I really know a lot of people dealing with this topic, and so I'm really glad you're doing the show on this. You don't know. You might really help somebody's life. I've literally known people's lives who were saved just because of sharing the show, and this could definitely be one of them that is there. Um, also, they can catch it as an archive or a podcast, again, through iTunes, TuneIn.com, or my YouTube channel on the show. And I do want to mention, if you're logged into the chat, I can't actually see you um, right at the moment because my chat is not coming up <laughs> where I am, but I do hear that the chat is working among other people. So, you know, hopefully everybody will play nicely today, which I'm sure they will <laughs> out there. And I appreciate everybody who's listening in by phone and other means as well. I'm going to give a, a little insight here by Yehuda Berg, and I'm waiting for my guest to come into my queue, and I may need to call him here in just a minute and see if we can't get them connected into the switchboard today. Um, but a little, a little insight, because I always like to delve into Yehuda Berg's work, who is a Kabbalah master. And he does what I do with things. He takes the big, giant concepts, and he puts things into everyday language, which is really important. I find that's where we can get the most benefit or the most use out of it, um, is when we feel like we can really apply it to our own life. Now, the insight he has for this week, and by the way, this insight goes up on my page of the Main Street Universe tab on my website, jessianwickelschorts1.com, and you can go back and refer to it all throughout the week. I leave it up there for an entire week. And the name of God, the common name of God that we have that we're working with this week is called Fear of God. And... um, this is really an interesting concept. The, the little message he gives to start off with is, fear of God does not refer to the religious notion of a creator who punishes and rewards. The light of the creator is a thoroughly positive force, an endless spiritual energy whose only attributes are infinite sharing and love. And the insight that he gives on this is, Fear of God refers to an inner understanding of how our universe is wired. Mistreating another person, for example, is like sticking our finger into a light socket. It's a cause that brings about a definite and painful effect. But it's not the electrical energy that needs to be feared. It's the act that brings us into dangerous contact with it. And I think that's a really important point because so many times we put the fear on something outside of ourselves and we put the fear on external situations and people, 
but it's actually how we act in the situation that is what's dangerous. And fear of God means seeing the future consequences of our present action. For instance, if we could foresee the negative consequences attached to disrespectful behavior, our long-term vision would cause us to refrain. Our decision will not be motivated by morality or religious fear. It will be based on something far more persuasive, our own self-interest. The power of acute observation comes to us through this name. And I think that also is a very important point because this is one of those things where we really need to stop, pause, breathe, think before we act <laughs> on things and to, you know, really take a look at that. And uh, the meditation that he goes on to provide here is awareness of the divine spark in every person is awakened in your heart. You become wiser in the ways of the world. You perceive the repercussions attached to your every word and deed. And you know that sharing acts toward others are always in your own best interest. So the common word again on this, or the common name, is fear of God. And the formal name on this is Dalad Mandat. Dalad Mandat. So and you can find that on my page of the Main Street Universe tab on my website. And uh, that will be up all week long for you to refer to. Now, a little thought here for us to grab before we go to break and um, hopefully have our guests on right after that because we have a wonderful guest today, Tom Roberts, and addressing a very, very important topic. So let me get that um, little thought for you and, and go from there. Have you ever been afraid to accept a diagnosis or known someone that was? Has the way society views something kept you or someone you know from getting the help that they need? And have you ever had to deal with high levels of societal judgment, be it real or imagined? This can be a very touchy area for so many. On one hand, labels can help, and on another, they can feed negative programming. There's no question that most societies are laden with heavy judgments about things that they are uncomfortable with and, un and unknowledgeable about. <laughs> I say this since usually our discomfort with something is because we either know little about it or only look at the worst-case scenario that can happen with it. We see these judgments on a day-to-day -day basis in aspects of society such as homeless people, drug users, those with mental illness, and even our veterans. All of these people, yes, even the veterans, get the stigmas of being loose cannons. We are told, watch out. You don't know what, when they will snap or don't trust those people or don't get too close. You don't know what will happen or what you might catch. Now, while this can be a reasonable concern with someone that is not taking care of themselves and sneezing and coughing all over the place, that is true whether they are homeless or disguised in a suit. After all, not all the well-dressed people take care of themselves either. In more recent times, we have come to realize the connection between nutrition, living in certain areas or under certain conditions, and how that can affect people's mental state or well-being. However, some of the greatest societal stigmas come when we talk about mental illness. After all, there is a great deal of it that is hereditary or has a multitude of pieces involved in it. Ironically, 
most companies do or would hire a known drug user over someone with something even as simple as depression. And with that kind of thought pattern, is it any wonder that those with mental illness, be it basic or more complemented, are hesitant to say anything? Sadly, as with many things that we choose to keep deep within, these same people reject the help that they need because they don't want the stigmas of society. They can't handle the thought that they are placed at the bottom of so many things. Sadly, it can also lead many to take their own lives as they not only struggle with their illness, but also struggle with the lack of acceptance or ability to be viewed as a person. Tom Roberts has known the tragedy side of this in himself and his own family, and he has worked hard to help people change out these stigmas that are costing people their lives unnecessarily. Now, he's not blaming others by any means, but simply seeking to bring in a much-needed consciousness for us to pay attention to. It wasn't that long ago that we placed these same stigmas on people with physical disabilities. They were outcast and rejected deeply as well. Now, we make all kinds of adjustments to include them into our society. So why not do this for someone with mental illness? My thought is partly because so much of mental illness is greatly misunderstood. And I think in some ways, this is much scarier to the average person because we can't see the mental illness. It feels unpredictable to us. At least in a physical disability, we are able to see how that person is challenged. This is compounded by the fear of someone going postal and the labels of someone being high risk. Ironically, there are many mental illnesses that are not dangerous at all. It also wasn't that long ago that we still had high stigmas on those that saw a psychologist or psychiatrist. And now we accept them as a reasonable channel for working through life challenges. It seems to me, among other stigmas that we have to have let go of, that it is time for us to also let go of this one too. Have you or someone you know struggled with mental illness? What are your thoughts about those with mental illness? And what judgments have you noticed about mental illness? This week, we're focusing on a component of compassion that is related to the aspect of my book of not my problem. And this reminds us to care about others while they're going through the challenges, to not judge them for where they are at or what is happening, but to provide a safe and compassionate space for them to accept and work through things. I'm going to take a short break, and when we return, I am hopefully going to have Tom Roberts with me. Hopefully we're going to be able to get him connected into the switchboard, and we're going to be talking about ending mental illness stigma. The song I've got for you during our break is called You Walked Into the Room by Claire Hedin. And if you'd like to find out more about her work, you can do so at www.clairehedin.com. And I'm going to get that started, and then I may put on a second song just to give you a heads up um, in case it takes me a little bit more time to get connected. I'll be back shortly. You walked into the room, I felt 
You can learn more about Tom's work at www.tomspeaksout.com. And Tom, I welcome you to Activating Compassion Radio. It's great to have you with us today. And um, would love What's to have you okay. start off. Oh, okay, thank you, you're, you're welcome. And I would love to have you start off by sharing um, some insight into your journey getting to this point of doing this work that you're doing now. Okay, well, you were, as you were describing my background and everything that I'd done and been in, I was having flashbacks. I was remembering those days and how I was feeling and not knowing what was wrong. I, my keynote speech now and that I love to give to college students is the speech I wish I had heard when I was an undergraduate. And that was at a time when Richard Nixon was still president and the Vietnam War was waging. And I was a student at this little Baptist school in Arkansas, struggling with depression, but not telling anybody. I did not know it was an illness. I thought I was doing something that brought it on. And if I had known, I probably would not have sought help because the stigma was so great. My my dad was always making jokes about the so-called crazies in the state hospital. He did have some mental illness in the family that I was aware of. Uh, had an aunt uh, uh, clinically depressed, as, it, as I recall, and her son has schizophrenia, who was really never never treated. So I was going through my mind. I was thinking about my goodness, I was sick, and I didn't know it, and I didn't have anybody to talk to because nobody talked about mental illness in my family, nobody really talked about mental illness in my culture, and to top it off, at that time, I was studying to be a Baptist minister. In fact, I was ordained uh, my junior year, and by that time, I was also married. And uh, it just wasn't making sense that I would go through these periods of very, very deep depression. And uh, one day, uh, while I was an undergraduate, my wife had gone to her class, and I was uh, at home alone in our apartment. I went into the bathroom, and I turned down the gas and the little gas heater and laid down. And as I did that, I thought, oh, my God. What am I doing? Look at the people I'm going to hurt. Uh, I just can't do this. And I turned the gas off. I never told anybody. In fact, I didn't share it until 40 years later. That it was actually an attempted suicide. The depression dogged me for the next 25 years, I guess. But it was also punctuated by periods of hyperactivity. And so when I was feeling good, that's when I was an anchor man on TV and voiceover person and on the radio every day and uh, often was acting either in community theater and eventually in film and television and uh, doing voiceovers. But when I was depressed, I couldn't get myself to do any of that. I missed a lot of work because of depression. And so I write a lot today about uh people who are depressed and trying to make a living. And uh, 
the thing about bipolar is that it takes a long time for somebody to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Here's why. It presents itself as depression. So what happens? You're treated for depression. You don't go to the doctor and say, hey, doc, I'm feeling great. What's wrong with me? So nobody catches you. And it was, uh, oh, my goodness, by that time I was a college professor, late 1980s, and I had my sights set on Hollywood and being a professional actor, and I had just come out of a major depression. I was giving an antidepressant, which is the worst kind of antidepressant you can give to someone with bipolar. And it sent me to the moon. I left my family, my wife, my two little kids, my job, wound up in Hollywood, no money, and no job. In fact, it was right in the middle of the writer's strike, as I recall. And, you know, I didn't know what was going on with me. And uh, about six months later, the antidepressant had worn off, and I was back in suicidal depression and I got on a bus and went back to Arkansas to try to rescue everything, my family and my job, but it was all gone. Well, it was another five years before I was finally diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And that was a year after my brother's suicide. I was working for, uh, uh, yes, I was working for a technical, uh, I was working for a surgeon at the time and talking nonstop during an operation. <laughs> he, he asked me to step out of the room and he talked to me and he said, you're acting kind of scary. And I think you may have bipolar and I don't want you to come back to work until you see the psychiatrist. And so five days later, I at the psychiatrist's office. He asked me what was going on, and I talked nonstop for an hour. And he said, without a doubt, you have bipolar, and I'm writing the prescription for lithium. You to start immediately. Well, that's how I got there. It was, it was real confusing, but I had to go through a lot of pain and a lot of loss. This is, you bring up multiple good points for people, I think, to pay attention to because, you know, mm-hmm. we do live in a society, and I, I'm a person who's very prone natural healing and all these various things. However, we we still live in a society where there's a lot, a lot of stigma around these things, and people have things going on like what you're talking about, and whether they choose to treat it with medication or naturally or whatever path they choose to go with. So many of them don't know what they're dealing with. And until you know what you're dealing with, you don't know, <laughs> you know, where to go with it. And I think exactly. that that's a big, a big point. It's like if you don't know that you're allergic to nuts, you don't know to stay away from them. Uh, mm-hmm. If you don't know you're allergic to dairy, you don't know to give that up or to find an alternative, Um, these same sort of things. So there are so many people, I think, that have can relate to what you're saying because I know myself, I went through a suicide attempt when I was very young. Um, I was 20, 20, going on 21, 
um, at the time. And I think the thing that's scary there is you mentioned that a lot of people don't say anything. They don't say that that's where their head is at. They don't say that's the direction um, that they're headed. All they know is I don't feel like getting up. I don't feel like going and facing my day. Um, I don't know what's going on. I just know that I have these different components. Uh, and fortunately, the meds that they gave me for depression <laughs> at that time, I found out I should never, ever, ever be on an antidepressant because it was the antidepressant that led me to do a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually had an adverse reaction on me where um, it made me more depressed instead of easing my depression. Were you so prescribed you that antidepressant by your Were you prescribed that antidepressant by your primary care doctor or a psychiatrist? Neither one, a gynecologist. That's just good. Well, the reason I'm asking is that a lot of people who go through depressive episodes, they go to their primary care physician and they ask, you know, he realizes they're depressed and he just puts them on an antidepressant not realizing <laughs> that that's not the appropriate one. And the reason mm-hmm. that's true is that my, my stepdaughter is a physician, and I asked her, hey, uh, what did you cover in, in medical school about uh, mental illness? And she said, very, very little. We just learned the terms, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, but focused on the physical. And and so I'm very opposed to physicians not referring their patients to a psychiatrist who is a specialist in the field and can prescribe the right kind of, of medication. It's that's crazy. And and that's a great point to bring up because I think you know, especially when we went through the so called yet regeneration, it was like just give me a pill and fix it. I don't want to do anything, and they were very prone to take whatever and not explore and say, is this the right thing? And, and you know, you look at somebody, say, like my mom's generation, and there was a lot of overlap and, you know, treatments of things. First of all, you didn't really go see people, <laughs> you know, to start mm-hmm. with. And then, you know, there was just... Uh, you know, the, the, the aging were put in with the people that were in the mental wards, and there, there wasn't all of this differentiation. It was just, you know, I think a lot of doctors have like, just let me give you a pill and make you go away. <laughs> right. And they're not, they're not attentive yeah. with it. So this is important that you're bringing this up. The, the stigma, we, you mentioned the stigma a while ago, People don't realize that mental illness is a physical illness. The brain is an organ. It's just it's, a, it's an organ, and it gets sick like the kidneys do, or the stomach, or the heart, whatever. And, and if we take it from that approach, hey, this is you know something going on with my brain, and uh, and find a specialist in brains, and usually that's a psychiatrist because. The illness manifests itself in behavioral problems like attempted suicide and prolonged depression and doing impulsive things like running off to Hollywood to be an actor 
and uh, that's that's what happens. And and yet the stigma persists. I'm waiting this morning, by the way, for the verdict in the Colorado theater shooting uh, trial, where they're trying to uh, uh, you know say James Holmes was mentally ill when he opened fire in the in the movie theater. And I'm waiting for that verdict. Now, the problem I have is that when media talks about mass shootings, uh, cases like this, what do they say? Oh, he was mentally ill. But they don't go beyond that. They don't go on to explain, okay, he had a mental illness, but he wasn't treated. He, he was afraid to go see a psychiatrist because he was afraid of stigma. Uh, that that is what really aggravates me is the media, and I'm speaking as one who used to be a reporter, and I was on the air, and back in the days before I was diagnosed, I probably would have said that too. The suspect is a bipolar person, or he has bipolar, or he has schizophrenia, and just drop it. Don't explain. <laughs> It makes it much more dramatic that way that you can say that in 20 seconds as opposed to spending a minute to talk about the person and not the illness and then tack on to that, by the way, he's being treated for, you know, whatever. And that what that means is there is a, a chemical imbalance in his brain and, you know, there is medication for it. Um, I, I just I get frustrated every day. <laughs> and I'm a CNN junkie, so I, I, I get frustrated because I watch it during the day. Well, and, and, you know, these are the different pieces because I think that on one hand, there's been so many cases out there where people just automatically said they're mentally ill, you know, to give them a scapegoat for their actions. But then you do have a lot out there that really do have something that have never been diagnosed um, uh, of things. I mean, I remember different things that I was put through for companies I worked for, uh, for example. And I was feeling like, um, you know, I was feeling like uh, uh, good about myself at that time, <laughs> you know, feeling very solid and strong and confident. And they came back and they told me I was paranoid because I didn't believe in the devil. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, well, yeah. isn't that interesting, you know? And and I thought, I don't believe that. But it, so I think there's been so many variations, and that probably feeds into people's fears of working with somebody or really finding out what's going on. But like you say, you know, the piece that we don't talk about is here's a person that's been dealing with all of this their whole life and maybe never could get the help or the treatment or knew what they were dealing with or any of these things. And so explain to us, Tom, if you can, a little bit more about what mental, what classifies something as mental illness? What what actually makes it a mental illness as opposed to a passing mood, for example, mm-hmm. or emotion? Well, well, that's a very good question, and uh, I, it's always based on behavior. Behavior is the issue. The behavior might be alcoholism or it might be drug addiction, and it's discovered that those simply are masks that people are using for the pain 
if they can get drunk enough or they can get out of reality with whatever their drug of choice might be, then they can deal with life. So check the mask first. The other thing that discovers mental illness is when you understand, for example, what the symptoms are of major depression. You can go to my website, TomSpeaksOut.com. I've got a page dedicated uh, to the symptoms of depression, and you could even take a self-test to see to make sure this is clinical depression. It's not situational depression. It's not just because I've lost my job or I'm getting a divorce or whatever it might mean. The same applies for uh, bipolar. And as I say, we're very hard to catch. It took a long time to catch me, and I did a lot of damage. And I look back at those years and think of all the women in my life and and the jobs and my behavior and this and that, and uh, I'm thinking, my goodness, I did all that because I was <laughs> sick, you know? Uh, it, it, in fact, uh, my my behavior was so bad, it was written uh, about in a book uh, by uh, Carol Lieberman, who's a well-known psychiatrist. Uh, the book is called Bad Girls. <laughs> it was how I got involved with, with a couple of bad girls because, uh, you know, I was hypomanic at the time. I was doing impulsive things. So when you're looking at, is it a mental illness or is it something else going on? That is where you begin to find it, 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 the knowledge needs to needs to increase for people that it is mental illness. Now I I want to talk about my brother and sister for a second because that's very interesting situations as it comes to what happened to them. Uh, my brother Jerry was seven years younger than me, and uh, he died when he was thirty five. I didn't know until I was standing in front of the casket and his wife told me, you know, that Jerry was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when he was in the Army a few years ago. No, I didn't know that. And he didn't want to go get treatment because everybody would have thought he was crazy. And so he drank and he womanized and he heard all the things that we do. And I... Uh, and one day, I, 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 he called me from the uh, drunk tank at the VA hospital in Little Rock. I was living a couple hundred miles away in northwest Arkansas and told me where he was. And I said, well, come and stay with me for a while. And he said, no, I've got to get home to my wife and boys. And uh, those were the last words I ever heard him say. And... Uh, Two weeks later, uh, or maybe a week later, my stepmother called and said, have you seen Jerry? Nobody's seen him. He's, he's, he's disappeared. And I said, no, the last time I talked to him was just such and such a date. And um, and then around two weeks after that last conversation, I got a call from my aunt and saying, I am so sorry they found him in the woods today. My brother's body was found in the woods, and he had gone out there alone with a bottle of prescription narcotics and a quarter of Jack Daniels whiskey and sat down at the foot of a tree, and he went out where it wouldn't hurt. 
knowing he was going to die because of an overdose. Well, they found his body two weeks later. It's uh, a decomposing body is is um, you know it's pretty tragic, and he wasn't wasn't identified until dental records from the army you know came through the next day. But uh, everybody knew who it was in that small Arkansas town. It was the man who was missing. So there's a good example of what happens when you're lucky enough to get diagnosed, but then you don't do anything about it because you're afraid of what other people are going to say. My sister was the same. She served five years in prison because of the three strikes law in Arkansas. She wrote a bad check. Bingo, she was in prison. When she came out, she was clean. She had been, she hoped to check to buy prescription narcotics. When she came out, she was clean, was going to NA meetings, et cetera, et cetera. But then the stress of a relationship hit her. And instead, and so she started doing self-harm, cutting herself with scissors, going to the ER, getting sewn up, sat home. Psychiatrist was never alerted. She never went to a psychiatrist to find out what was going on. And so she overdosed at age 40. You know, a fear, again, of stigma, keeping people from getting help. So when the behavior shows up and you think something's going on, investigate. Look it up. Are these, am I going through major depression? Am I, or is this bipolar? Why am I acting so crazy? Or uh, What's going on here? And so once you get that kind of information, then go see the appropriate doctor who is somebody who specializes in it, and that's a psychiatrist. Bipolar disorder is genetic. Uh, Sometimes it runs in families. It ran in my family. My father had it and ran from stigma until he died at 62. And uh, then my brother, my sister, was a stepsister, and the depression probably came through her family. Who knows uh, where that came from? My youngest brother has it. My my half-sister has bipolar disorder. And so when we talk about causes, the genetic component <laughs> is so obvious in all the studies that's going on. Um, And and unfortunately, my dad's manifestation of his manic side came out as domestic violence. So my brothers and sisters and me watched him being violent with my mother. And then when my mother died when she was 34, then my stepmother. And, uh, And that had a tremendous impact on us. But all the time, he was suffering from major depression, covering it up with alcohol, going nuts, and then settling down and being one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. But the heart disease got to him, and he died at 62. I'm 64 now. (laughs) And it's kind of weird to know you've outlived your father by two years. But thank God I have, and I've outlived my brother. And my saddest feeling is... Why wasn't I diagnosed a year before? I could have saved my brother with that information. So that's a regret I have. It is really tough to find these things out, I think, and 
sometimes it is challenging to know, is this a behavior or is it an emotion? Is there a reason behind this? And I think that's part of our starting mm-hmm. point. Is there an actual reason behind this happening? Am I going through huge mood swings because we have this younger generation that's called indigo children and they're very sensitive and a lot of them deal with bipolar aspects um, because of this sensitivity. So they naturally go to these highs and these lows and things like this. And and I think, you know, like you say, it's important to know what we're dealing with here and to realize that, you know, it's just like, it's just like anything. We've had to overcome the stigmas time and time again in society, whether it's been because of physical things or drug things or whatever it's been. Um, and, you know, yet now this is just one more piece of us understanding how to work with people who are dealing with this. Just like we had to learn that we needed to put in ramps for wheelchairs and have elevators in buildings to make it accessible to people who more able to walk. Um, I, you know, I think the challenging thing for this is it's not, as you've mentioned, it's not so easy to profile somebody who's going to have this or not have this. We know that, okay, if you've got relatives that have had this, and as you mentioned, oftentimes most of them are never diagnosed, so you don't know whether they have it or not. Um, that's one way, but... Um, you know, this can be such a long process because we always have things that could trigger us, like a relationship ending or losing a job, which a lot of people have been going through these days um, in the last few years. It can get very hard to separate these different pieces out. And, you know, thank goodness you learned about it to, you know, keep yourself going in this this process. And I think the diagnosis is not so much about let's get a label on this person as much as it is, let me just understand what I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true no matter what it is for us. Um, and, and I think that awareness is so important because that's the only way we're going to be able to start working with people who um, are, are dealing with these things on mm-hmm. a day-to-day life. I have a passion for college students because I was a college professor and I and I went through a miserable four years as an undergraduate uh, fighting depression and so forth. I, I gave a speech last November to students at uh, the University of North Carolina and Duke University. They were neural care students, uh, very interested in neurology, but they wanted to hear about this um, mental illness. And so uh, the young man who was in charge of it approached me privately, and he was from India. And he said, I am struggling with so much depression, and what you have to say has helped me so much to understand and have the courage to go see a counselor here on campus. And he wrote to me a couple of weeks later, and he said, I saw that counselor, and I am on medication, and thank you. It struck me because a couple of reasons. One, college students, college age, because the suicide rate on campus is incredible. It is the leading cause of death among female students. Car accidents are the leading cause of death among male students. And we're talking about 15 to 20, age 25. That's when the mental illness creeps down, generally around 20. 
And uh, that was true in my case. And uh, so, but the other thing is the cultural issue. He was from India. You don't get mentally ill and mental ill treatment and, and, and acknowledge it in India most of the time. And in this country, being African American is also a problem for treating mental illness. And I found it interesting in my research that not only is it stigma that they were afraid of, but we're talking about a whole society who's faced discrimination already just because of the color of their skin. Why add to it by saying not only are they black, but they're mentally ill? And uh, I, I'm beginning to write and explore a lot about that and how I can get the word out to other cultures, you know, that everybody has a brain and the brains get sick. And uh, I just want to get that, you know, that word out. But the crisis on college campuses is in, incredible and how many suicides are happening and how the stigma affects students from and keeps them from going to get help because of fear. Their friends will think they're crazy. And that is so huge because, you know, as you mentioned, it was around 20 that hits, and that mm-hmm. seems to be an age that it really surfaces. That's when it was for me. And mm-hmm. and other people that I know that have been on medication for bipolar, for example, um, it hit them at around that age. Some of them it hit younger because they had a lot of stress triggers growing up in a separated family and um, it was triggering it sooner in their in their life. Um, but it's also interesting that you bring up the cultural aspect because, um, you know, again, this, this doesn't hold to any particular boundaries as far as wealth or class status or things like that, but there are certain cultures where it is even less acceptable than, say, in America, <laughs> as you mm-hmm. mentioned, um, it, it, those cultures, there's so much pressure on being perfect um, and not having these things going on because of the way they run their beliefs in the culture. Um, and it makes it even harder. And so that's kind of an interesting thing where we look at that in relation to, as you said, you kind of watch and pay attention to what's happening in some of the cases, uh, criminal cases and things like that that go on in the world and the diagnosis that are coming out of that, um, you know, it's very interesting that there could be a higher predominance going on. But I agree with you. I think that's college age, and and I think it's important because, like you've shared with us with your brother and your sister, if this goes undiagnosed or somebody is unaware of what they're dealing with, oftentimes there are these early deaths that go on. Um, you know, they, they tend to take their life young, as you say. And I did not realize that suicide was the highest cause of death for females in that college age range. So that's also very interesting, although I've worked in troubled teen facilities in my past and know that a lot of them do struggle with that um, in their mid to late teen years um, in there. Yes, 15 mm-hmm. 
Go right ahead. Yes, 15 to 24. That seems to be the prime danger age, onset of mental illness, and then suicide. I like to stress when I when I speak of the statistics of suicide. I have one speech called 17 Minutes, and it lasts for 17 minutes. And I tell my audience, by the time I finish this talk, one person somewhere in the United States will be dead, a victim of suicide. We have 42,000 suicides annually in the United States, one every 17 minutes. In the world, one every 40 seconds. And among our veterans, that's another passion that I have, there every 80 minutes a war veteran commits suicide. PTSD, not going to get treatment, fear of stigma. All those blockages, you know, the fear of stigma, and also the impact on crime and and the impact of, on these big, <laughs> all the money we spend on jails out here. The L.A. County Jail is known as the biggest insane asylum in the country because half the inmates are insane. And when I use the word insane, half the mental, half the inmates have a mental illness and have it been treated at some point earlier in their life, they may not be in prison. And uh, that's, that's, that's really heartbreaking uh, for me. I, I, I look at that and I think of it. I used to do volunteer work in the San Mateo County Jail up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I lived there for a couple of years, I guess. Um, and I would see the same guys. They would be on hold to go to San Quentin or another state prison and then I'd see them back in jail again. You know, they serve their time, then they come back. Every time it was because they didn't deal with the mental issues when they were younger. And uh, so they get into this repetitive pattern. Homelessness is another critical area. Most of the people who are homeless, who litter our streets here in L.A., or any other big city in the country, are mentally ill. They have not been treated for a mental illness. And so what do we do? We try to ignore them. Uh, we watch people who may have active schizophrenia and be going through an episode and try to avoid them, even though that's an illness that could be treated. So we have we have daily reminders of the impact of stigma and impact of stigma, and uh, that's uh, that's the thing that that bothers me the most. Those are really really huge points because these are things that are in our face every single day, and and people want to complain about these problems, and yet they're not doing what needs to be done to help these people because they've been so bred in these fears. Oh, those people are mentally ill. Watch out. You don't know what they're going to do. And I think this aspect of, of looking at it, and if we think of this from an aspect of compassion, imagine having something that you don't know that you have and you're struggling with it and, it, and, and you do things that you feel like you can't control 
you don't know what's going on. So you have a certain amount of fear going on already because you don't know what's happening with you or why you are doing certain things. And then you get tossed into the prison system where you then have a whole bunch of other abuse and things that you're exposed to and you're still not getting the treatment. I mean, this kind of sheds a different perspective I mean, on things. Basically, you know, it, it would be like somebody taking a person and going, well, let me throw you in a cage with a bunch of abusers. <laughs> because it's, you it's, don't it's, understand what's going on with your life. And that's what we're doing, basically, based on, you know, what you're sharing with us. We look at the homelessness factors, and yes, there are those that use drugs and things like that, but like you say, a lot of that stems from people not understanding what they're really dealing with. So they go to the drugs or the alcohol or the other areas to numb things or to not deal with it. And and we've been bred with all these fears, especially with like schizophrenia and things like that um, in there. And, it, you know, we have to look like, okay, here we are, and we're complaining that they're on our streets homeless and that they're maybe hanging out in the library annoying us with their smell or whatever else. But we are not providing them with what they need to take care of themselves as far as the medications or the illness or any of that so that we can get them out of, <laughs> you know, right. our and, and it is where we can be in that safer space. So I guess... I guess that leads me into some of the the other aspects of sharing. Um, you know, you're bringing up some of the aspects of why is it dangerous for us not to, you know, to to have these stigmas because it's actually putting danger in our own backyard by not dealing with these people that yeah. have things. And maybe you can share, you know, some of the the. Um, I'm going to say, you know, do we need to do we need to be afraid of somebody, for example, with schizophrenia? Do we? Um, and what are some of the steps maybe we should be taking? Oh, yes. I, I I love talking about that. You bring up a very important subject. People believe that people with schizophrenia are violent. <laughs> they are not. In fact, they're more likely to be victims of violence than they are violent themselves. I think the latest figures that I saw, maybe 3% of all the serious, severely mentally ill ever committed crime are ever violent. And yet we're all blamed for violence. But schizophrenia, I, I, that is a terrible, terrible brain disease. It is lifelong. It is treated. There are medications to treat it. Uh, I was just thinking last weekend, and maybe you're aware of it, your listeners uh, saw the movie, A Beautiful Mind, based on the life of John Nash, Nobel Prize winning Princeton University professor, was killed in a car accident with his wife. Uh, it was last Sunday morning or Saturday night. And uh, Russell Crowe played him in the movie, to, and I thought, what a, that was the first time I had ever seen a movie about mental illness and what was going on. And John turned out to be a great spokesman for uh, uh, mental health, mental illness, and trying to get rid of the, uh, of the stigma. And sure, he was stigmatized, but he was still able to function 
and be a wonderful, brilliant professor and make wonderful contributions to the field of mathematics. So it's, you know, this whole thing about violence, boy, that, that bugs me a lot because I think, you know, that people automatically assume, you know, if, some, I, if somebody finds out I'm bipolar, and I, by the way, I want to tell you that I married into uh, a Muslim family five years ago and faced the cultural stigma that already existed and I was told, keep my mouth shut about bipolar. <laughs> Don't say anything. And then I found out why. And then I started educating my close friends who were uh, Egyptian Muslims and they listened to my speeches and they said, wow, I understand. And uh, yeah, and that's that's the thing. It's you know if I could if I could say look look at me, <laughs> I have bipolar disorder, and that is the thing that can be managed. I like something that my daughter says. I have one I have a stepdaughter who's a physician, another daughter who is a nurse, and uh, she is, works in the emergency room, and uh, she tells her bipolar patients who come in who are having symptoms and are off of their medications, she says to them, my dad has bipolar disorder. He takes his medications and he's just fine. And that's the kind of encouragement that I hope that I can, that I can spread. If you have a mental illness, it's treatable. There's medication out there that can't treat it if you get the appropriate treatment. And that comes from a specialist called a psychiatrist. And the combination uh, for many bipolars, and I'm certainly included in that, is the uh, the medication and psychotherapy, uh, learning to manage. Uh, stress is my biggest enemy and lack of sleep. If I go three nights without good sleep, I can expect to probably go into a hypomanic episode, and I don't want to be there, and I don't want to be depressed. But taking one's medication, realizing that mental illness is treatable, but you got to get past the stigma and go get help. Now, going back to the homeless for just a moment, I, I look at the politicians in California, for example, and I, I ask myself, okay, who's crazy? Who's crazier here? <laughs> the people <laughs> on the street who have mental illness or the politicians in Sacramento who cut back the number of psychiatric beds in California, who cut back funding for community-based mental health, and uh, I, I just, I'm so dismayed by it and so angered by it. A lot of that goes back to Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California. Uh, he, 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 he started closing down mental hospitals with the promise that we were going to have community-based. Well, it didn't turn out that way. There was no funding for the community-based. And then when he became president, he he uh, he uh, had the, the bill that Jimmy Carter signed into law about funding mental health treatment centers in communities. And I I am a believer in karma. I have a feeling that uh, there was no mistake <laughs> of why John Hinckley, 
just happened to be on the sidewalk that day when Reagan walked out of the building and got shot. You know, everybody looks at John Hinckley and says, the guy's nuts, you know. And so he's locked away for 30 years. And and, and, and I'm looking at the politician, Ronald Reagan, I'm thinking, hey, I voted for this guy twice. <laughs> I thought he was a great president. But what I really look at what the politicians did to to have such a detrimental impact on the mental health of our society, I, I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> I don't no. want to run for office. I don't want to run for office, but I just look at them and I'm thinking, uh, okay, what are you going to do to us now? <laughs> well, and, and there are so many pieces to that that, you know, I could go into <laughs> Oh my goodness! You know, yeah, I get into, I get into politics. It's always kind of it's always kind of dangerous to talk about politics, but that's why. But I know exactly what you're saying because I went to college at Cal State Northridge in the Los Angeles region in the San Fernando Valley, and during my college years, as part of what I had to do for one of my psychology classes, was um, I spent time working graveyards. In a, in a mental health institution facility. Hmm. It wasn't a, a big, giant, multiple-floor one, but it was um, It was kind of the program I worked in was kind of a transition program, but served even way back then what you're talking about, which is, oh, so sorry, there's no more funding for you, so we're just going to release people onto the streets, and that's what they were doing. And then these people had nowhere to go. They were homeless. They weren't getting their treatment. They weren't having anybody supervise their meds anymore. And issues started coming up. And, you know, it, it is that cycle that we have to look at it somewhere and say, what are we going to do as a culture, as a society, um, to, to make certain these things. I mean, granted, once they're out of the facility, you... You know, you can't force them to show up and get their meds. But if we're cutting them off of any financial resources to have what they need, and we're doing this not just with mental illness, we're doing this with the elderly right now. We're doing this with, um, my mom was just commenting on that. She does a medication that I desperately need to have I'm being removed from because they won't cover it under the insurance anymore. Um, and... And this concerns me with the mental illness where we already have this lapse, and now we're going to cut them out of more. <laughs> I mean, right. It's a huge thing. Yeah. And you bring up also sleep, which is incredibly important for anything. I mean, that's the only way we can regenerate. Uh, that's, that's where our body heals is in sleep. So if we're overactive, you know, we, we can't get that healing, that resetting that we need to have um, on there. And I'm hoping, too, that you will, um, while we've got a little bit of time here, shed some light on maybe some of the signs and simple symptoms that people should be paying attention to, um, perhaps the ones that we might normally brush off or have just been told by other people, oh, just get over it. <laughs> well, uh, the, yeah, the simple symptoms, okay. Um, one is that people should be paying attention to is... Um, uh, clinical depression. Now, that's, as I said earlier, that's different from situational depression. Okay, I'm depressed today because, depressed today because I had a fight last night with my wife. 
uh, or whatever. Clinical depression, as it, as, it, as it manifests itself, often either we stay awake all night and sleep all day or uh, so our, our sleep is interrupted. The uh, other thing that happens, we start thinking about killing ourselves. Suicidal ideation is a big signal for someone that they're in trouble. They, they need some help. Um, concentration, that was the problem for me. I, when I was clinically depressed, it was, uh, I, I just couldn't focus. I, I you know, couldn't pay attention to my job, and uh, I didn't want to be around anybody else. I lost interest in the things I normally liked. And uh, those, are some, those are some signals that you need to pay attention to. The uh, family and friends, I think, would be the best to observe the manic side. Like my friend, the doctor, who suggested I go see a psychiatrist. Because uh, you can't see that. You think, my God, I feel great. I feel wonderful. And you're talking a mile a minute, and your thoughts are going crazy, and, and, you're, and you're up half the night with brilliant ideas, and then you go do something impulsive. And I remember the day I decided I was going to go to California to um, uh, pursue my acting career. I met with a couple of friends of mine at a Hardee's uh, fast food place in the town where the college was located. And this guy was my closest friend in, as I, uh, on the faculty. He was a psychology, psychology professor. And I looked at them and I told them what I was going to do. And never once did he say, I think something's going on here. And I, I want to kind of point it out and maybe I could help you a little bit. They looked at me like, my God, I can't believe he's going to do this. And uh, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate. But friends and family can observe behavior that's going on. If there's a lot of masking going on with alcoholism and drug addiction, once you get out of that, um, then you can look at the, uh, what they're hiding, what the causes are, and that means get into recovery. So uh, 12-step programs, uh, get into a recovery center, whatever, they will find it and find out what's going on uh, in the background. But uh, I would watch out for those, those signs and, uh, and to be aware that somebody, somebody needs some help here. Oh, I need, I'm going through it and I need some help. Unless I'm going, I'm hypermanic, then I, I, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, but somebody else can observe it. And I think this is, you know, these are some basics. This this lack of concentration, getting too much sleep, too little sleep, um, mm-hmm. you know, losing interest. We think, oh, well, maybe I'm just getting older and that's why I'm not interested in that. Or, you know, um, I've got this little stress factor, so I'm not really interested in that. Um mm-hmm. As you say, you know that kind of manic side where your mind is racing a thousand miles a minute, and these are these are things that can easily be overlooked. I mean, I'm a creative person in a lot of ways. I get an idea, I want to run with it. My mind is there; it's focused. Um, but there's you know, there's very fine lines between being impulsive and following a whim <laughs> or a mind. There's very fine. 
fine line between uh, not having good concentration uh, and and just having a lot going on in your life. I mean, and and so I'm glad that you're bringing these up because these are the ones that we tend to overlook. Oh, well, it's just one of those days I can't focus well. Oh, you know, I, I just got to run with this idea right now. And there's times where we may seem impulsive to other people and we're really not. You know, like I know I've, I've had times where I just didn't share what was going on with people, but then I, you know, I went and did something. And on their side, I'm sure they, they thought it was very impulsive, but I had been planning it for months, <laughs> you know. Right. So there's some right. of these things that things can happen where we have to act quickly, but there's a, you know, again, we have to sit back and kind of look at ourselves and go, okay, Am I doing this in a very impulsive way? As in, for example, I go into the store and I see that candy bar by the cash register and I just can't let it go. And I'm going to get it. I'm going to impulsive buy that. Or have I been craving chocolate for the last three weeks and the craving hasn't gone away, so now I'm going to satiate the craving? There's a difference. and I But they're very subtle and very fine lines. And I think the thing for us to keep in mind is that, you know, and, and, and I think that's challenging for a lot of people is we can't see these things that are happening. It's not like, you know, and, and I wanted to do this near Memorial Day because the veterans were heavily impacted. But, you know, somebody goes off the ward, they get a light blown off, we can see why they can't walk. When we deal with a mental illness, we can't see it. So it's much harder for most people to grasp what's happening and how to deal with it um, in there. And it's not tied to, like we said, class. I mean, you cannot look at somebody on the street and know whether they've got a mental illness or not. Because as you mentioned, some people can be very high-functioning in these illnesses. It, it it is an invisible illness. You're absolutely right on that. We don't see it. Now, if somebody's walking around talking to somebody you don't see or hearing sounds you don't hear, uh, that's another matter. But you don't see depression. You don't see bipolar, and this person is in a manic episode and doing some pretty silly stuff. I forgot to mention earlier one of the one of the hallmarks of depression is isolation. I remember that was a big problem for me in my first marriage. I would just isolate. I didn't want to be around family, extended family, anybody. And I would just hide out in my bedroom, watching the same television show over and over again, whatever it might have been, but I could not socialize. And uh, that's that was a that was a big problem. It eventually ended my marriage, but uh, I had an impact on my marriage, not ending, but had a, a significant impact on my marriage. So, um, yeah, those are things to, to observe in yourself. If you don't, somebody else can observe it. But again, for the other people, the so-called normal people who don't have a mental illness, that's the other part of what I do. My, my my website and my, my speaking is dedicated to educating people about mental illness because everybody's kind of slipped it under the carpet. We figure if we slip it under the carpet, uh, we'll 
we'll forget about it. Nobody's going to pay any attention to it. Uh, Bill Clinton, President Clinton's best friend, or close childhood friend, uh, became his White House counselor, uh, committed suicide. I believe it was the second year of uh, Clinton's first administration. That woke Clinton up a lot about about mental illness, and he made some great, great uh, statements. One of them is my favorite. He said, you know, there's nothing wrong with mental illness, but shame and stigma, but stigma should shame us all. I'm paraphrasing this, not exactly word for word, but stigma should shame us all. And I think as a society, we should feel ashamed. This is not the 1700s where people who had mental illness were burned at stake. It is not uh, the 1930s where the Nazis put people like me in concentration camps and eventually murdered them. This is not that time. This is supposed to be an enlightened time. <laughs> we have great medications. And lithium was the wonderful one. It came out in 1949. It was discovered in Australia because it calms some rats. And they figured, hmm, I wonder if this is going to work on the hyperactive people who have manic depression. And they tried it out. It took two years to get it on the market because the pharmaceutical companies wanted to claim it. And it's a natural substance. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so you got the, you got the politics, you got the money. Um, all of these issues are standing in the way. But it really begins right with yourself and your attitude and your view of a brain illness. <laughs> You're not going to look at a kidney disease the same way. You know, there was, a, there was a time when nobody talked about breast cancer. But we talk about it all the time now. And uh, well, it's, 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 time, it's time to talk about this, too. And, and, that, and that's exactly, you know, the point that you bring up first to remember, that this is disease that's happening in an organ in our body. And we don't. We don't view kidney disease or liver malfunctions or digestive disorders or anything like that, but we've come to understand them. And I think mental illness is in that point where it's coming out more and more, but there's so much that we're not told and that we're not understanding and that fear of what we don't know is is what leads us locked in these middle ages, <laughs> so to say. With that. Yeah. That's a good point. Fear, fear of the unknown, uh, and and that's that's I think that's it. Fear of the unknown, and 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 taking taking snippets of information, like the news, and saying, oh, the guy was mentally ill, and they shot like fifteen people. You know that. You know what do you what do you walk away from? Oh, mental illness is violence. <laughs> the mentally ill are violent. You know, I'm gonna stay away from these people, and and. That's so unfortunate. We are, the the technology in and of itself, I think, is reinforcing a lot of the stigma, and uh, we've got to pay attention, and we have to be educated. I, I love watching Doctor Drew every night. Doctor Drew is right on target when it comes to mental illness, and uh, boy, he will explain it when we're talking about a murder story or whatever it might be that's in the news, and he will explain. You know, somebody says. They're bipolar or the schizophrenic, and he will explain what is going on there. 
But we don't get that on CNN. We don't get that on CBS or any other networks. You know, they've got 20 seconds to tell you the story. And all they have to say, the guy was mentally ill. And we take the rest of it. Yeah, definitely. So now, what about the people that are in people's lives? Let's let's say I've got a relative who is dealing with severe depression or bipolar or whatever it is. And how how can I go about supporting that person in their process? Um, I think this is a big thing because a lot of people don't know what to do. It's like, okay, I noticed this. Maybe this person is willing to get help or not get help, but how do I support them? How do I, well, I, what think, do, I do for them? I, I would suggest that one of the things is sit down with them. You know, I, I noticed this. Are you okay? And I, I remember I was taking questions from the audience at uh, at the uh, University of North Carolina, and the first question somebody asked is, "I have a friend who has bipolar, I think, uh, and he's showing these symptoms. How how do I approach him to get him help?" Um, and and I and I said, "Listen, sit down and listen. People need other people who really." actively engage in listening, not judging, but listening. And in that process, you know, you could think, you know, I read something the other day about clinical depression. You know, why don't you, you know, go get, go get an assessment, you know, whatever it would take, and encourage them along the way. But with the other side, the bipolar, that was pretty rough when, when my... Uh, my uh, my physician boss said, "You're acting kind of crazy and scaring the staff." Those are his exact words. I don't want you to come back to work until you've seen a psychiatrist. I was reading something the other day about millennials. I, you know, I I'm a baby boomer, so these guys, these young people, are fairly new to me in that particular age group. But having so much trouble on the job with depression untreated depression. That's a good example of, well, they had stigma, they were afraid to get help, but it's also an example of the workplace not being mentally safe. It starts at the top. uh, People need to know mental illness is a brain disorder, they need help. Uh, An employee should not be afraid to tell us his employer, I have to go to a therapy session uh, today. Instead, they call in sick. They call it uh, pre-absent, pre-teism, I think is the word. Uh, it's the opposite of absenteeism. It's, 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 it's the, you know, I'm not coming to work today. I don't quite feel well. Well, they're depressed. And they don't know how to say anything about it because they don't feel safe at work. They hear all the jokes about uh, mentally ill people or whatever that's fostered by the employer and uh, I, that that's so tragic that that the ignorance is there and, and uh, I don't know if, if you're aware of this but 80% of the severely mentally ill are unemployed and most of them you know, 
what a job. That's a huge statistic. And, you know, when we look at it, we do have these fears. It's like, oh, look, the the postal service hired this war vet because they have to give them an automatic 10-point, you know, bonus because they're a war vet. And then that person went postal and (laughs) started shooting up the office. And he says that this is what we're given to work with. Is it any wonder people are afraid of what to do. And, and before I had connected with you in bringing you in, in today, uh, one of the things I had brought up in um, my initial thoughts going into the show today dealt with the fact that we are more prone to hire somebody who is a drug addict than we are to hire somebody with depression. Exactly. You know, yeah, drug addicts, we can say, <laughs> we understand that, you know, we understand, you know, we can understand that, but what we don't understand is why. Why yeah. are they using this temporary relief that actually is killing them? Um, Dr. Drew said something last night I really liked. Prescription pills are killing more people than alcohol. <laughs> and so, you know, they, 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 the, they, the biggest drug uh, dealers are probably our physicians. Give you something for pain, and uh, people get hooked. And uh, you know, that's another, another story. But uh, I, <laughs> I get, I get, I get angry about that as well. I, you know, I would like to mention one thing too, because police brutality has been in the news ever, ever since Ferguson uh, last summer. And um, I, I'm bothered by, not necessarily by that. What I am bothered by is is law enforcement ignorance of mental illness. In 2014, 14 mentally ill people in an episode were shot and killed by police. I, you know, removing them from the force. Exactly, and I think it begins at the police academies, the training about mental illness, how to approach the situation in a mental health crisis, you know, what to do, what's going on here, how do I handle this, and a very few police departments in the country, and statewide, as I understand in Massachusetts right now, the police officers are being trained and in, 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 in dealing with mental illness. In fact, they have uh, units put together to go out uh, with the initial patrol investigation to, to deal with the situation. Uh, we had a tragic situation here two years ago in Fullerton. I'm not very far from Fullerton. And, and it was a guy that, uh, he was homeless, and he hung around a bus stop. And uh, the police officers, two or three of them, went over to investigate, see what was going on. Well, it wound up getting the physical, and they beat him to death. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they were charged with second-degree murder, and the uh, trial the following year, they were acquitted. Why did they beat him to death? He wasn't armed. He was just talking to himself, you know. I, I just, uh, situations like that, they're based on ignorance. They're based on ignorance. They're not bad people. They're just ignorant people because they haven't been trained in the right way of how to deal with situations like this. 
and we've got and we've got so many dynamics <laughs> when we get into this field because hmm. I know myself I've been accused of many things that I am not because maybe I stood my ground and I was really independent and didn't want to follow the crowd for some reason. Um, I didn't like what they were doing and I didn't want to do it. Um, and, and I was automatically labeled, you know, something that I wasn't or like being labeled paranoid, you know, borderline schizophrenia because I, I said I didn't believe in the devil the way the traditional Christianized version uh-huh. of the devil was. And uh-huh. I didn't fear it. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think there's some of the other extreme, too, of, um, oh, you're not a highly social person, therefore, you know, it's not okay to be an introvert. You you know, you must have a, a, a mental illness or something. And so we have a lot of different dynamics when we get to this aspect of things. and. And I think the root of a lot of it is going to be about becoming aware. You know, we have so little knowledge of how the brain functions to start with in a healthy person, let alone somebody who's got an illness in the brain Mm -hmm. Um, there. So I I think, you know, I think these things are are gigantic when we get into that. you mentioned some things. It kind of starts at the top in a way. It starts at the top, but it also starts at the bottom, I think, as far as changes that need to be made in our society to deal with this. Um, you know, we need to get the stigmas out, and that that means making people feel safe in the work environment that they can open up and say, look, I deal with depression, but I'm on medication, or I'm doing this for it. It should not be interfering with my job, or, you know, this is going on for me, and and how do we, you know, I think we need to start making accommodations of positions that these people can work in, even if they are dealing with schizophrenia or whatever it is, um, finding out where their assets are and how we can use them uh, favorably. Um, and like you say, looking at how many police officers have no <laughs> mental illness going on. And right. Where the abuse levels are coming from, you know, I mean, it's so massive it overlaps so many different areas, I guess. So, you know, maybe any thoughts you have on these changes that would be maybe a starting point for us? Most people with who I, I quoted the side of the eighty percent uh, severely mentally ill are unemployed. And uh, but many, most of them, the adults, they want to work, but that's where supported working environments come in. Tell your employer, hey, I'm covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act. I need special accommodations. With a bipolar person, somebody with bipolar disorder, um, being given an opportunity to work in a, in a quiet space so you can focus. Um, have a job coach sitting by, so if you're learning something new, to uh, you know help you out to remember because short-term memory loss is affected uh, by our illness. And, um, and, and there, but there there are many ways. I mean, there's such brilliant people out there. There's there they simply are sick and they want to work, and uh, they could contribute so much to a company. 
with little or no investment. Uh, it, it, it amazes me. We get them off the streets and uh, and into into productive lives. But again, you're you're absolutely right. It starts at the top. And uh, I liked it. it I, I, did, I wrote a, a blog article not long ago about CEOs who are mentally ill. And it was very interesting because the CEOs I focused on, their excuse, I need a leave of absence. I'm feeling a little stress on this job. As it turned out, they were suffering from major depression. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and they were, but, you know, they knew what it was like. But they weren't fostering a mentally health-friendly workplace for their employees, and uh, that's you know that's that's where you know it begins at education, of responsibility, um, and the politicians getting their act together and realizing what they're doing to this to us by not providing the necessary funds to help people. You mentioned the Disabilities Act, which I think is a huge thing for people to realize. I am protected under this law, and you cannot discriminate on me, you know, for this reason, and this is what I need. I think these are the important things, and when people are willing to look at something and say, this is what I'm dealing with, this is what I need, it's no different than somebody coming in saying, you know, I have children, and I need to be off work by 4 o'clock so that I can pick them up from daycare. It's no uh-huh. different than that. Um, I, I, and I think that even though on one hand it starts at the top, it takes up, or people who are in the grassroots or the, the bottom level saying we need these accommodations. And, you know, really it's just going to come down to one person filing a lawsuit for discrimination to change it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that happened one time that I'm aware of, and the lady won lots of money out of it. But uh, I think there should be a class action suit filed against police academies coast to coast, and there should be a class action suit uh, 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 against major corporations who are not implementing this <laughs> mentally health friendly place. I'm looking back at my own work history. Uh, you mentioned it in your introduction of me that it became impossible because of bipolar disorder to continue working. And and actually, had I not been so afraid of stigma, had I not self-stigmatized myself, I might still be working today, my last job or the job before that. But instead, you know, I lost jobs because I wasn't focusing. I couldn't remember simple directions. It was all the impact. The first nine years after I was diagnosed, I was on lithium. I didn't know that lithium affected concentration uh, concentration, until my psychiatrist told me, oh, yes, that's a side effect of lithium. Thanks a lot for telling me. But for the past 15 years, I've been taking an, an anticonvulsant that's often used uh, for, for mood uh, stabilization, and it's worked beautifully. But by the same token, part of the illness, and especially the prolonged depressions will have an impact on your cognition. And so cognitive disability is one of the side effects of this whole thing. But you can't work around it if you work with it and uh, w- without fear. And uh, 
I, I, I love working for myself. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting <laughs> down in my office and my computer, you know, writing, you know, uh, marketing myself as a speaker, that kind of thing. I, you know, and if I'm tired, I take a nap. And, um, you know, and I get a good night's sleep every night. I, 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 our dog knows what is bedtime because at 9 o'clock, he has downstairs, and that's time for me to go downstairs. So we're in bed, and I get six or seven hours a night, and I feel great. Well, and, and you know, the self-stigma, I think, sometimes is even harder than the outer stigmas that we get. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I'm so glad that you, you touched on that as well. Um, I, I want to give you a chance to maybe share some resources for people, you know, if they go, yeah, you know what, I am tired. Yes, I do have this concentration thing going on. And it is important for us to check out because sometimes something is nutritional. Um, You know, I know like my mom, for example, dealt with a lot of depression when her thyroid was off. So it is important, I think, for us to rule out maybe something else physical going on but to acknowledge that there might be more than just, say, thyroid going on that's creating the depression. And so let's say somebody goes, hey, you know, yeah, I guess this mood is not just a mood. It's kind of hanging on a little bit longer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I, and I think what are, what are the primary – well, the primary care physician, I mean, I'm criticizing them because they play psychiatrists when they couldn't be. They're not trained to do that. But they're the first screener. You know, they'll tell you, well, you know, your blood tests look normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Uh, I think you're probably dealing with depression. Um, I, I'm going to refer you to a psychiatrist who is in my insurance group. <laughs> and that's and that's where you go. Uh, that's the way it should be. But it's not always that way. Uh, there are organizations that I would highly recommend. And uh, the, the the main one is the... Uh, National Association on Mental Illness. It's called NAMI. And they have uh, family education uh, where you can go and your your family learns about a particular illness. Or you can simply go and and listen and and maybe talk to other people uh, and and find out what they're doing and where the resources are. Uh, There are, in your community, there are places to get psychotherapy so that it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. And usually those are found at universities, the psychology departments, and, they're, and they're, uh, the, the students are overseen by uh, psychology professors. You know, and it turns out to be free. You know, you can go. There are community places where you can go to get psychiatric help. And um, uh, it's there, but we need more of it, as I mentioned earlier, we need more funding to make sure those community places are available. But the the thing you asked me, the thing resources, NAMI would be a terrific resource for education, um, and making and ruling out the uh, the physical element. Uh, of course, is going to be uh, with your doctor. I, I I have on my website a, a page devoted to all the resources that that I could find that are, that are very nice and handy. Um, I do remember uh, when I was diagnosed, I bought uh, immediately Patty Duke's book uh, called A Brilliant Madness. And it was about her 
experience bipolar disorder. So she wrote one chapter. Her psychiatrist or psychologist wrote the next chapter, and then she wrote the next chapter after that. And that helped so much I could identify with it. And uh, and that's that that helped me through that period of time, knowing that I wasn't alone and what I went through wasn't unique to me. I, I think that that's the thing is there there are probably a lot of people dealing with this, and again, whether somebody you know and a reason for going to a psychiatrist versus a psychologist is the psychiatrist has the ability to work with medication should that yeah. be necessary. And as you said, something like lithium, which isn't quite, you know, total drug. It is a little more natural in some of its aspects. Um, there could be various things there. And whether somebody chooses to go with an actual medication or whether they try to, to seek out a holistic uh, solution for it, the key is that you, you may- know you're dealing with because you cannot find a solution until you understand what you're dealing with. I cannot overcome a fear unless I understand what my fear is. Yeah, you have to know. Go go ahead. Oh, I I was just going to say that was it. (laughs) It's the same thing. You know, it's just like you you can't overcome a fear that you don't know what the fear is. You can't get past being angry at something if you don't understand what's creating the anger. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You, you mentioned natural remedies, too. I, I was struck in lithium. Uh, I was struck when I was doing some research not too long ago uh, about the history of treatment of mental illness. And it goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. The The physicians at the time would send their mentally ill patients to bathe in lithium springs. <laughs> High concentration of lithium is where they would be bathing. And nobody figured that out for another 2,500 years <laughs> until this guy in Australia discovered it calms uh, hyperactive rats. So, uh, yeah, when I, when I say, talk about lithium, I mean, the side effect was bad for me, uh, but uh, I, I found something else. But that's usually the first drug of choice and, and treating and then and you can talk to your psychiatrist about other avenues. But, um, and the other thing is the psychiatrist is the person who will know. They will do the evaluation. Do you need to be on medication? And if so, prescribes it. But the psychotherapist is the one who will help you with the day-to-day. Uh, that's, that's, you know, dealing with stresses, dealing with situations that, uh, you know, create problems for you. And, and I'm glad you brought that up about the Greek springs. You know, you wonder why they were such popular <laughs> places and things like that. Was and then our skin absorbs all of that. And you know, we look at the flip side of what what were the pictures of shown to us growing up. I know in my going through school, what was shown to you, you know, but these pictures of them drilling into your skull. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like, well, why would I want to go get a diagnosis? You know, because All right. I don't want my skull drilled into, right? But I'm so glad you brought that up, and it's it's been so great to have you on the show because I think you've touched on incredibly important things for us to be aware of, and an aspect of where we need to be compassionate in this world that we still have a lot of work on. 
a lot of work to do. And I would love for, for you just to, again, share um, any summing up point that you want to provide and your website, again, with our listeners um, so that they know how to contact you or connect with you should they like to do so. Well, I knowing something about your audience and, and about your work uh, brings to mind about what people can do who are not mentally ill. Random acts of kindness. Boy, that's good for the soul. And it's good for people who have a mental illness. Being kind. You know, your concern is for the person struggling. You're simply being kind by listening to them and then helping them find help. That's where it begins, communication. Yes. Beautifully, beautifully shared. And mm-hmm. your website, again, is TomSpeaksOut.com. And people can go on there and you've got some great information on there about um, the faces of bipolar disorder, the voice of mental illness, the danger of stigma, um, PTSD, uh, all kinds of things, schizophrenia, uh, these various aspects. And they can go in and, and look at these things in your blogs. And, you know, you really have some great stuff going on and they can connect with you if they want to book you as a speaker <laughs> for something. <laughs> because I think I think this is something that is going to be coming out more and more and that we will be opening more. So, Tom, thank you very, very much for your time today and your energy and sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. You're so welcome, Jesse. Blessings on you and your audience. And blessings to you as well. Thank next you week here on next week here on our show, I'm going to have Robert Meeker with us, and he's going to be sharing his work in sacred attention therapy, which is based on the work of a previous guest of mine, Richard Harvey, um, which we delved into uh, his work of the essential self. So I think you're going to find that really, really interesting. My books on relationships have been released. You can check those out as well as anything else that I'm doing on my website at jessieannicholsgeorge1.com. You can check out events that I have going on and they're being added constantly because I have all kinds of different things being added around the Midwest right now. I have more things that are going to be added around the eastern part. If you've got a group you'd like me to come and speak with or or share with or anything like that, just contact me. I'm usually very happy to... Um, work you in to, to what's going on and when I'll be through your area. So uh, feel free to contact on that. Uh, again, people can find out I've got monthly specials that are going on. Um, you have a couple of days left to take advantage of the May special deal, which is uh, to participate in any full day or full weekend event during the month of May or June. Now we're going into June. <laughs> and you'll receive a free set of my Activating Compassion books. You can find out more about that on my website, jessianniclesgeorge1.com. And June's special deal, which is going to be coming up, if you donate $50 or more to my Compassion Tour GoFundMe campaign, you will receive free decoding insight for yourself or someone else. And um, that's where you can gain greater understanding to what your natural flow is and a greater understanding about uh, what is personally coded for you. If you donate $100 or more to my GoFundMe campaign for the Compassion Tour, 
uh, I'll do a free decoding for you and a partner or business name or location or other aspects that you're trying to align with. Don't forget we've got several shows here on Main Street and first throughout the week. Monday nights with Randy Goldberg doing Vedic Astrology. Tuesdays is Susan Wheat sharing her work in herbs and natural plants. Wednesdays we have Daniel and Janice on our flagship show, and they've had a little bit of a break there as uh, Randy Goldberg um, has been off and on a little bit of break here during the summer months with different things that have been going on. But uh, Darren Bucare, who uh, does readings at Madame Bill in New Orleans, is back on the air as well with us. Uh, he just had a show two nights ago. And um, and then Kevin Bear pops in and out. So watch for Kevin. I'm going to have Kevin as a guest on with some really cool, fun stuff that he's using uh, in his work called New Companion. This is Jesse Ann Nichols-George, and I want to thank you so much for being here today. And thanks to all of our listeners, not only on Blog Talk Radio, but those that are streaming live through Penn, known as Parent Encounters Network, Stream Finder, and Talk Stream Live, as well as those that are catching our podcast at iTunes, TuneIn.com, and those catching the YouTube version of our show. I look forward to seeing you back here next week as we delve more into activating compassion. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed my show today, share it with others. It's going to be available at the same link in our archives. And I'm going to leave you um, with the song called Yearning For, also known as The Burnover. It's by Shemshai, and you can check out more of their work at www.shemshai.com. That's S-H-I-M-S-H-A-I.com. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you again next week right here on Activating Compassion Radio. May you enjoy the rest of your weekend? And have a truly amazing week. And if I could see what makes me blind, I would soar to the edge of my mind. And to touch what seems unreal, just to show you the way that I feel. And we are in time with time, one with season of change inside. We are in tune with the tune Caught in a balance of sun and moon Oh, deep inside the light within Shining to show you it's here to begin When all I have is all I need I will soar to the edge of eternity And we see in eye to eye One within love to be for the divine And we're walking hand in hand Caught in the balance of God and
Oh, oh, oh. 